0: This week on Life and Faith.
1: Many of Austen's first mega fans were male. So Walter Scott, who was one of the biggest novelists of the same generation, thought that frankly she was a better novelist than he was. Winston Churchill was a great Jane Austen fan. C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien both loved Austen. Uh, this is a really long history of men thinking that Austen is remarkable in all sorts of different ways. One of the most intimate places you can be with someone is at the moment of their death. This is the only world in which I live. I don't live in another world. I am autonomous
2: and independent and self sufficient, and I will get to decide my good.
0: Welcome to Life and Faith from CPX. I'm Simon Smart.
2: And I'm Natasha Moore, and this is the Jane Austen (laughs) episode.
0: It is, how did we get here?
2: I think it was probably close to a year ago now, Simon, that I said to you, I think we should do an episode on Jane Austen. I think it would be great fun. People love Austen. (laughs) You were sceptical.
0: Well, sort of. Only in the sense it's a bit more niche than we usually go for. (laughs) And I think I might have said, well, how's this a life and faith topic? I think I'd retract that question Good.
2: Oh, I'm glad. Because, you know, I get that I'm not sure I can pay niche because... There's a lot of love for Jane Austen. But, yeah, I see how it may not be the most obvious choice for life and faith, but there's lots of stuff around on Austen's faith, what that looked like, how it might have shaped her work... And also, I think it's fair to say that her novels inspire what we could almost call a religious fervour.
0: I think you could call it that. And people really do love Jane Austen. I have noticed this.
2: And Tessa. it's actually, it's not a new thing <laughs> either. No. Um, I recently came across an account of how Austen's novels were prescribed during World War One. Yeah for soldiers who were suffering from shell shock. Mm. Uh, And Kipling wrote a short story called The Jainites, which is also about a group of soldiers who bond in the trenches on the front lines over their love of Jane Austen. I wonder if
0: that's a standard issue these days. That's right. This is what you mymetry. need.
2: One of the characters even says that there's no one to touch Jane when you're in a tight spot. Uh, someone else who seemed to agree with that was Winston Churchill. Apparently during the Second World War when he was ill and bedridden in 1943, he had his daughter read Pride and Prejudice to him. So maybe, you know, if you are under pressure and life's a bit much,
0: Jane Austen, Jane Austen
2: That's is the, the writer answer. for you.
0: Now, you're a fan, of course, Natasha, but we thought we should talk to an expert on this topic who is a friend of yours as well.
2: Yeah, so Katrina Clifford is Dean of Academics at Robert Menzies College, which is attached to Macquarie University here in Sydney, and a scholar of 18th century literature, including the novels of Jane Austen. She's also one of the biggest Austen fans I know.
0: (laughs) Yes, and look, I want to say, even if you're not an Austen fan, stick with this. You're going to enjoy it. We
2: guarantee. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. I asked Katrina first up to talk us through the adoration that Jane Austen inspires in so many people.
1: Austen fandom's kind of on a different level to other fandoms. And it's been going for a long time, actually. So in the 1870s, Henry James noticed this as a thing. He was a big Austen fan, but He felt that his love for Austen was intellectual and mature and didn't really like all of these (laughs) fans who were just appropriating Austen for their own ends and not appreciating her properly. But that's 150 years ago, right? So there have always been people who have appreciated Austen at kind of that high academic level. Many of the kind of uh, public intellectuals of the 20th century were Austen fans and they used to kind of fight over whether Mansfield Park or Emma was the best novel. This was was kind of a genuine debate that was held in gentlemen's clubs. The important questions of the day. Absolutely. Yeah, let's scrap politics. It's Jane Austen (laughs) is where it's at. But I think the modern-day Austen fandom really started in 95 with the BBC Pride and Prejudice, which was a real moment where Austen went mainstream in a way that she hadn't been mainstream before. She went from being kind of this classic thing that you study in school to being something that everybody watched every Sunday night for six weeks. Uh, She really became a global phenomenon at that point. We've seen since then film adaptations over and over and over again. We've seen novel adaptations over and over and over again. We've seen plays and musicals and all sorts of things coming out of Austin. And all this has really fed into this sense of Austin as this global figure and this global phenomenon.
2: Because there's the fan fiction phenomenon as well and kind of the growth of the... Internet and what that allows as well.
1: Mm-hmm. Yep, absolutely. So there were really early web pages that were devoted to Austin and Austin fandom. There's this huge one that's probably 30 years old now, called The Republic of Pemberley, which was all just right from the start about Austin fans getting together and talking about how much they love Austin. So there's chat boards that go back decades that um which is your favourite Austin novel and which is your favourite Austin hero and what do you love most about Mr. Darcy and who wanted to be Elizabeth Bennett when they were a child? It was a really massive phenomenon long before kind of these fan pages were really a big thing on the internet.
2: So is there still that division um, to some extent between the kind of everyday obsessed fan who's like, which is your favourite Austin, you know, man or whichever, and, you know, the academic heights at which
1: you appreciate Austin? I think there is. And I think, Perhaps it's gotten worse, to be perfectly honest. (laughs) The snobbery. The snobbery, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think a lot of the Austin in the public imagination has focused on the romance and has focused on kind of this idea of which is your favourite hero kind of appreciation of Austin. A lot more people have seen Austen films than have read Austen novels. And so I think there's a bit of a divide there between people who have only experienced Austen through film and, the you know, the purists who have read her in her own words. Um, I quite regularly talk people into reading Pride and Prejudice and the thing they consistently come back and say is I didn't realise she was funny <laughs> because they'd only ever seen the BBC Pride and Prejudice which is, you know, it has moments of humour but it's not consistently funny. You don't get that kind of ironic tone that she manages to convey the entire way through almost all of her novels. That's one of the things that I really love about it. And so I think you have a bunch of kind of scholars and academics who are very much, no, you need to actually read the books to appreciate Austen properly. And a whole lot of people who just want to watch Colin Firth over and over and over (laughs) and over again. Dive into the lake. Absolutely. Um. Not in the book, by the way.
2: Before we go further, it's worth addressing one cliché about Jane Austen, that it's chick lit, that only women and girls read it. If you're listening and you're male and maybe a little bit sceptical, Katrina wants you to know that Austen is also for you.
1: Many of Austen's first mega fans were male. Or at least the mega fans who we kind of have written confirmation that they were mega fans. Um, so, Walter Scott, who was one of the biggest novelists of the same generation uh, as Austen, thought that, frankly, she was a better novelist than he was. Uh, and he just thought she was amazing and fantastic and told everybody out there to read her. Winston Churchill was a great Jane Austen fan. C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien both loved Austen. Uh, This is a really long history of men thinking that Austen is remarkable. It was a man who first compared Austen to Shakespeare, called her the female Shakespeare. That's really early on, less than 10 years after her death. In fact, it was almost a, a criteria for being considered to be a proper educated man. Uh, For much of the last kind of 150 years up until kind of our present moment, uh, if you hadn't read Austen, then you weren't properly educated. And if you didn't like Austen, that was, you know, another thing entirely. What's wrong with you? Mm. Absolutely. Mark Twain famously didn't like Austen. He's got this amazing quote. He talks about, you know, he keeps on being in places where there's a library, you know, he's on a ship traveling to the other side of the world and there's a library and the only thing worth reading is Jane Austen. And so he has to read her again and again and he really hates her. (laughs) And he talks about, you know, every time I read Pride and Prejudice, I want to dig her up and hit her over the head with her own shin bone, Which is just vivid. (laughs) But the amazing thing about it is, like, it's every time I read Pride and Prejudice. Like, he comes back to it again and again and again, (laughs) even though he hates it so much. So, yes, I think if you're a man who loves Jane Austen, you are in very good company, at least historically. Um, I've taught a number of Austen classes at university, and without fail, the most enthusiastic student in the class has always been a young man. There's often only really? been one in the class. And boy, has he been pleased to be there because <laughs> suddenly like, he's found his tribe. So I would suggest to guys who are perhaps interested in expanding their reading tastes or their reading habits or perhaps interested in impressing a young woman in their lives... <laughs> plenty of young men who have come to Austin that way. Don't watch the movie first. Because if you watch the movie first, it's a chick flick, right? (laughs) Guys don't want to be reading books that are chick flicks. Austin is so much more than the romance. It's so much more than the love story of people getting together. Although, quite frankly, there are plenty of guys out there who like love stories as well. Um, But read it as perhaps an intellectual exercise, read it as an experiment in cultural engagement, Uh, read it as just a way of going, what is there to care about about this? So many people in the world are massive Austen fans. Maybe I should read it for myself and find out what the big deal is. Um, I've forced a number of young men and older (laughs) men to read Pride and Prejudice, and every single one of them has loved it.
0: Okay. So, This is probably where I should confess that until we decided to do this episode, I had never read a Jane Austen novel.
2: Yeah, this was part of our deal (laughs) that you would read Pride and Prejudice in time for this episode.
0: (laughs) Yes, which might be why it's taken us a while to get around (laughs) to this, but...
2: Yeah, I mean, I don't know if you'll remember, Simon, but several months ago, I won't say exactly when, (laughs) we sat down and had a pre-conversation about the book. Let's revisit that. Okay. So, Simon, I'm a bit shocked that you have never read any Jane Austen. I know that a lot of men have not. <laughs> um, but I don't feel I like you're, well, you're not the kind of person who I think would be like, oh no, that's for girls. No, no, I'm, not, um, I'm not
0: averse to some 19th century novels. Yeah. Either.
2: Well, you know, you're not someone who's like, oh, I don't read novels. Like you used to be an English teacher. So I'm wondering how.
0: Yeah, have I don't you know. It's one Jane of those Austen? things like you just never get around to. I remember living in London and I remember right at the end of my time there having to rush around seeing things that I'd thought, oh, they're always there, I'll get to it eventually, Tower of London, you know, whatever, gone past it dozens <laughs> a of times, never line. got there until the last few days before I left. I feel a bit like that, like people talk about it, I don't You're know. You're saying
2: you want to read Jane Austen on your deathbed. Well,
0: <laughs> perhaps <laughs> it'll get to that. I uh, just never got around to it, I haven't been, you know, haven't sort of had a reason to and uh, I was once teaching in England in a funny little school and I was the only male in the English department. I think that's probably not unusual. Anyway, they had a sort of professional development day, which was out in this lovely country home, which was the head of department's house. And um, among other weird things, we had a Jane Austen session in her lounge room, and it was a very sort of English scene and very floral. Everything was floral. (laughs) I remember that. And to my embarrassment, I quite early in the session, I fell sound asleep in this big lounge chair. So I have a bad reputation already <laughs> when it comes to Jane Austen. So maybe this is a redemptive moment.
2: Let's all hope so. <laughs> okay. So what do you know about Pride and Prejudice at this point?
0: I guess it's, Mr. Darcy involved. Mm-hmm, there's a mm-hmm. uh, you know, love, maybe even, tr- is there a triangle involved here maybe? Uh, there's sort of, every- everyone wants, the-, the readers seem to want the character to be with one character and then one person and there's this sort of tragedy. Like a lot oh. of these sort of 19th century novels, the sort of unrequited love seems to be part of the deal and oh. the sad, you know, the sort of what could have been. Okay, so right? in, a, in other
2: words, you don't know the plot really of Pride don't. and Prejudice. Okay, no. great. <laughs> okay, so how are you feeling about reading it?
0: Mixed. I've, I've got about 10 books on the side of my bed at the moment mm-hmm. and... You know, because I'm being compelled to do this, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm resisting. But uh, it, it could be it could be fun. Uh, mm-hmm. I haven't haven't launched in, uh, so yeah. No, I'm feeling okay. <laughs> <laughs> unrequited love <laughs> It was almost unrequited.
2: Well, that's true. For part of the novel, there is what we would call unrequited love. <laughs> okay.
0: <laughs> Spoiler alert.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so, Simon. <laughs> Have you now read Pride and Prejudice? I'm
0: here to say I have read Pride and Prejudice and I thoroughly enjoyed it.
2: Yay! It's a bit
0: embarrassing looking back on that though and my (laughs) my vague sense of plot.
2: Well, it's kind of exciting that, you know, it's sort of, there's a lot of cultural knowledge that people have that Elizabeth Bennet and Mr Darcy end up together. Spoilers. So you got to read it without knowing that that was how it was going to end.
0: I actually did. And I didn't (laughs) know... I thought it might, be. I've read a few Thomas Hardy novels, I think I thought it might <laughs> go in that fun. direction, and I couldn't have been more wrong. Um, but no, I really liked it. Okay, uh, so uh, what did you like? I love the language. I love language, and it's beautifully written. It's very funny in lots of places, mm. so it's a, it really is, you know, laugh. Maybe not quite out loud, but you'll definitely <laughs> smile. I love that. I love her insight into human character and human nature. I think it's quite extraordinary, and... Yeah, you know, there's tons of interesting themes of appearance versus reality and honor, integrity, even when no one's looking. These mm. sorts of ideas. It's a it's a engaging story. People have found this right. I'm not the <laughs> first, but it's so beautifully written. I mean, it's Gene, it's actual genius. I mean, gosh, that is
2: an endorsement. It is. Any favorite moments?
0: Uh, there's lots of favorite spots. There's some quite catastrophic. Marriage proposals that I found very amusing mm-hmm. made me look like Shakespeare in my uh, <laughs> looking back on you my. You said some nice proposal. things about your yeah right it was hilariously terrible uh, mm-hmm. so I enjoyed those. There's a great moment where Elizabeth confronts this very intimidating woman at a key point in the novel, and the dialogue there is just fabulous. That was wonderful, and you know I actually found it a bit moving when things did. Even though they looked like they wouldn't for a long time and they started to work out between her and Mr. Darcy, I thought it was actually lovely. I also really loved the characters. I mean, they were rich and deep and you get this kind of insight into their thinking. And some of them are thoroughly awful, <laughs> but brilliantly conceived. And then the ones who who are not, I mean, she's so fabulous, Elizabeth, right, and surely everyone Very spunky. loves her. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She's a Great character, and also the way she reacts to the convention around her, where she kind of she is part of it, but she's wildly different in other ways, and there's something incredibly uh, attractive about that.
2: So, who is your least favourite character?
0: Well, Mr. Collins is okay. the most awful, <laughs> revolting, and, and Mrs. Bennett. Actually, they're a tie <laughs> for kind of revolting, shallow. Prideful, embarrassingly thin characters. Mm,
2: although, like, the first time you read Pride and Prejudice, you're like, Mrs. Bennett is unbearable. The second time, <laughs> or the third time, which I'm sure there will be such a thing, <laughs> yeah. there are a lot of people who, you know, go, actually, Mr. Bennett, like, he's abdicated his responsibilities to he his has. family, essentially. And the reason that she's it, like this, like, she's mysterious. the one who cares. Mm. That she gets a raw deal, and there's a lot of sympathy actually for Mrs. Bennett. Yes. Once we think about it,
0: right? She's painful. He's odd, and mis- it's a mis- bit of a mystery around him. Mm. He does seem to have checked out pretty early on, <laughs> <laughs> having ha- entered into a regrettable union. I think would be the <laughs> way to describe to talk this. Like I'm Gene going to speak Austin. like this. <laughs> uh, he's less amiable than he might have been. <laughs> no, it was a great. It was a great book. The language is brilliant, and she's, she's obviously worth revisiting. Worth the time. Yeah, so, worth the time. I
2: mean, having said that, Simon, does that mean that you will now be moving on to Persuasion, well, for example? Or I, I reckon
0: I will go somewhere. I think Emma. Okay. People have told me that's my next stop.
2: Glad to hear it. This was a successful experiment.
0: Yeah, it was, and as much as I was sort of press-ganged into this, <laughs> I, I don't regret it. This is Life and Faith from CPX. Well, let's take the heat off me and get back to our Austin scholar, Katrina Clifford. Katrina says she's been an Austin person since her mother gave her a complete works of Austin for her birthday when she was about 13 years old.
2: And I wanted to know in all that time, how has Austin shaped her? What has she learned about life from these beloved novels?
1: One thing that I've really registered as I've studied Austin more and more is the way that she really subverts systems from the inside. So she writes about these heroines who will not do what society tells them they should do. So someone like Elizabeth Bennet, who will not marry Mr. Collins, even though it's the logical thing for her to do. She will not even marry Mr. Darcy, even though this would be, you know, the scoop of the century, right? She won't do it because it doesn't fit in with her personal idea of happiness and where she's going in life and what the meaning of life is. You see the same sort of thing with Anne Elliot in Persuasion, that her father wants her to be part of this kind of world of nobility and peerage, and she's just not interested. She sees the shallowness and superficiality of that world, and she goes for something completely different. She does it in a much less dramatic way, than Elizabeth Bennet does, but it's the same outcome in the end, that she goes her way and she walks away from this life that has been laid out for her by others. And I think Austen does a very similar thing in terms of how she writes her books. So she's writing within a very conventional formula. Everybody knows what a Jane Austen novel is about. There's a guy, there's a girl, they meet, they don't like each other, they come to like each other, they get married. Like, this is the domestic fiction formula. It's always the same. When you pick up a Jane Austen novel, you know how it's going to end from page one. But within that system, Austen shifts little things, adds in little details, brings in interesting characters who have different perspectives. And so what she's doing is she is sticking within a conservative formula, but rewriting it in a way that brings really radical ideas uh, in in all sorts of places and i think i've come to see myself in similar ways that i tend to work within kind of formal structures uh, i don't kind of go out and bash down the system you know i'm not uh, i'm not an activist in a let's destroy the joint kind <laughs> of way but i like to think through how can i as an educated privileged woman use where i am in life to make life better for other people in subtle ways. How can I undermine the things that I think are problems? How can I put forward a different point of view in ways that are subtle, that don't completely overset the apple cart, but that help people to think, that help people to see a different point of view and a different option?
0: Now, the question of Jane Austen's faith is a somewhat vexed one. And Katrina is cautious about overstating or overinterpreting the evidence we have, and you know, fair enough. And she warns that we have a way of making Austen in our own image.
1: One of the interesting things about Austen is that she left very little material behind. So, as far as we know, she didn't keep a journal which is unusual for an 18th, 19th century woman, actually. Uh, And so uh, it's possible that she did and it was destroyed, but it certainly doesn't exist for anybody today to read. Her sister Cassandra destroyed a lot of the letters that she had written after her death. And so we've got very little kind of primary biographical material about Austen. And what we do have doesn't talk very much about faith. So we know that she would have been a church-going woman. Her father was a Church of England minister. Two of her brothers ended up being Church of England ministers. Uh, She would have gone to church every week. We've got reasonable indications that her family probably did family devotions and prayers in the evenings as a family. But we don't really have a sense of what Austen herself believed. So I suspect it was probably somewhere along the lines of an intelligent, thoughtful woman's response to being in a culture that was Christianized. So she probably would have said, of course, I believe the Bible. Of course, I believe the Bible is true. Of course, I believe there's a God who's there. Of course, I believe that Jesus came to earth and lived and died and rose again. But whether or not that was a personal faith for her is very unclear. So I think she was probably Christian in a similar sort of way to the way most of late 18th, early 19th century society was Christian, possibly slightly more devout um, because of her particular context. But I don't think she writes Christian novels. There are other authors of her time who are absolutely writing Christian novels. uh, And Austen's definitely not doing that. Uh, You see her portrayals of Christian ministers in her books are not particularly Christian. Mr. (laughs) Collins. (laughs) Mr. Collins, (laughs) Mr. Elton, you know, these are not admirable Christian men. It's not kind of until you get into the Victorian era that you start to see clergymen who actually act like Christian men with kind of Christian morals and a passion for preaching the Bible and sharing the word of God with people, that's not part of Austen's world. And so I wonder sometimes whether articles and comments about Austen as a Christian writer have more to do with her slipperiness as an author and our desire for her to be like us than anything else. And you see this operating in Austen fanfiction in a whole lot of different ways. Um, so there's a whole lot of Austen adaptations that are set within the Mormon church that basically kind of, uh, <laughs> they kind of conscript Austen as a Mormon writer. Uh, there's another whole set that set Austen in Amish country. Um, wow. But there's oh, that a, works. Yeah, because yeah. the conventions and – yeah, sure. Uh-huh, uh-huh, absolutely. Um, but Austen has also been adopted by the LGBT community uh, and you've got a whole lot of LGBT adaptations of Jane Austen's writing. You've got Austen as a feminist. You've got Austen as a social conservative. You've got – Austen gets adopted by everybody because she doesn't explicitly say what she means and she doesn't explicitly say what she thinks – And I think this is part of the reason why she's such a figure of fandom, because you can almost turn her into anything you want her to be. There's enough in the novels that you can kind of twist and turn and interpret and reinterpret in different ways to make her be what you want her to be. And so when people come out and say, well, she's obviously a Christian author and look at all of the Christian morals and the Christian ideas in her work, kind of go, well, that's probably partly because that's the world she lived in. But you're also saying that partly because that's what you want to see, uh, and she will show you what you want to see in her work if you look for it hard enough.
2: Tell me about her prayers. Mm. You say we don't have um, we don't have much material that she left behind, but we do have some prayers that she wrote.
1: Yeah, we do. We have three prayers that she wrote. And these are interesting as well in the way that they came down to us. So her sister Cassandra destroyed a lot of her material, uh, the letters and things that Austin had left behind, but didn't only keep these prayers. She actually passed these prayers on to a niece who then copied them out and then passed them along to another niece who also copied them out. So in contrast to most of Austen's material, we actually have several copies of these that have been copied by family members. And they're really beautiful prayers. They're very much in the tradition of the Church of England. What we don't have is any context for them. So we don't know why she wrote them. We don't know when she wrote them. We don't know who she wrote them for. They seem to be communal prayers, like the ones that would have been said in church. And so the best guess interpretation of what they were is that she wrote them for her family devotions, for one member of her family to read to the rest of the family as part of their Bible reading and prayers that they did as a family after dinner. But we don't actually have any evidence that they were ever used in that way. Uh, and I think there's, a, there's an alternate explanation of what's going on here, which is just that she's a writer, And so she writes and she writes and she writes and she experiments with this and she experiments with that. She's got a few poems as well. As a child, she wrote some short little snippets of plays. She's always experimenting with different forms. And so it's possible that these prayers were written out of a real sense of piety and personal devotion, but it's also possible that she was sitting in church one day and thought to herself, well, I could do a better job than that. Let's go home and see if I can write a prayer.
2: Mm. Would you maybe read us one of the prayers? Mm, maybe yeah. one that you particularly like or get something out of?
1: Yeah, yeah. So I, I'll read you the first one. They're quite long, so you'll just have to be patient. <laughs> so I'll read it and then I'll tell you what I like about it. Give us grace, Almighty Father, so to pray as to deserve to be heard, to address thee with our hearts as with our lips. Thou art everywhere present, from thee no secret can be hid. May the knowledge of this teach us to fix our thoughts on thee with reverence and devotion that we pray not in vain. Look with mercy on the sins we have this day committed and in mercy make us feel them deeply that our repentance may be sincere and our resolutions steadfast of endeavouring against the commission of such in future. Teach us to understand the sinfulness of our own hearts and bring to our knowledge every fault of temper and every evil habit in which we have indulged to the discomfort of our fellow creatures and the danger of our own souls. May we now, and on each return of night, consider how the past day has been spent by us, what have been our prevailing thoughts, words and actions during it, and how far we can acquit ourselves of evil. Give us a thankful sense of the blessings in which we live, of the many comforts of our lot, that we may not deserve to lose them by discontent or indifference. May the sick and afflicted be now and ever Thy care. And heartily do we pray for the safety of all that travel by land or by sea, for the comfort and protection of the orphan and widow, and that Thy pity may be shown upon all captives and prisoners. Above all other blessings, O God, for ourselves and our fellow creatures, we implore Thee to quicken our sense of Thy mercy in the redemption of the world of the value of that holy religion in which we have been brought up, and that we may not by our own neglect throw away the salvation thou hast given us, nor be Christians only in name. Hear us, almighty God, for his sake who has redeemed us and taught us thus to pray. So I think what I really love about this is The way that I can see, because I know about her and her family situation and her life situation, I can see the way that she has chosen to include in this prayer things that would be particularly relevant to her and to her family. So the idea of guarding the safety of all those who travel by land or by sea. She had two brothers who were in the Navy, and this is during the period of the Napoleonic Wars. So praying for protection for those who travel by sea is a big deal for the Austen family. And the other bit that I really like is the way that she talks about having a thankful sense of the blessings and the comforts of her lot. Austin was never wealthy, she was never well off, and particularly after the death of her father, was really at risk of sinking into significant poverty and was really dependent on the charity of her brothers. And yet that idea that her lot has comforts in it, that there are blessings that she wants to continue to be appreciative of and thankful for. Focusing on the good rather than the evils of her situation, I really like.
0: I actually loved that prayer. I loved hearing it and found it quite moving. And to me, it had a ring of truth to it.
2: Yeah, me too. I mean, even that thing she prays about, may we not be Christians only in name. There's a kind of genuineness and a longing to be genuine in her faith. I feel like as a Christian myself, I find it encouraging. I kind of want to put it into circulation in my own prayer life.
0: And when you read the book and the things that she's concerned about, Mm,
2: they show authenticity
0: and not just appearance, but reality, that seems like it could be reflected in the prayer.
2: Before we go, for the Austin fans, don't worry. I didn't let Katrina get away without answering a couple of quick, but very important questions. According to Katrina, Mm -hmm. Which is the best Austen novel?
1: What do you mean by best? (laughs) Which is your favourite Austen novel? Is that less controversial? (laughs) That's that's probably less controversial. Um, My favourite is Persuasion because I love Anne and I love her patience and perseverance and the way we see her delve into depression and then find her way back up into the sunshine again. But if I'm feeling sad, I don't want Anne. If I'm feeling sad, I want Elizabeth. And so I will go for Pride and Prejudice. And that is the one that I will recommend people start with if people have not read Austen before.
2: And your favourite Austen hero,
1: which is the Austen man? I like Henry Tilney from Northanger Abbey because he's funny. Yes. But he's hilarious. Uh, He cracks jokes and he doesn't take life too seriously and he likes to make fun of everybody around him and I would hate to be married to him because he would be a terrible husband. (laughs) But as a novelistic hero, I really find his lack of sobriety, not in an alcoholic sense, but <laughs> <laughs> his, his lack of willingness to take the world as seriously as the world wants to be taken, I find really refreshing.
0: This has been Life and Faith. I'm Simon Smart and Natasha and I have been talking Jane Austen. I hope you're satisfied, Natasha.
2: I am. I don't suppose, Simon, you'd be open to a Brontes episode at some point. Maybe give it a year or two.
0: Well, look, I'll think about it. Maybe some Russian novels that I think you're a bit resistant <laughs> up for to. that as well. In the meantime, do leave us a rating or a view. And why not share this episode with the Austin fan in your life or the person you want to become one.
2: And I hope that we've inspired at least some of you to give Austin a go if you haven't before. Simon is living proof that it's worth it.
0: Next week. Art is absolutely useless. Therefore, it's essential. We want things to be enduring. But since we believe the world is a limited resource Darwinian universe, we limit ourselves immediately before even we begin. And it's the artist, it's the music, uh, it's theater that transcends that somehow. You know, you don't have to be a religious person to experience this. There's a reality of transcendence uh, in a sunset.